First John chapter 2, and this morning will be in verses 24 through 27. First John 2, verses 24 through 27. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, the last couple of times that I've been in the public, we've been going through this section of First John, beginning really as a one-unit section, beginning in verse 18, and going through verse 27 we're looking at this morning. And as we have seen, John, in writing this epistle, is addressing some difficult times in the churches in Asia Minor. John is located in Ephesus and a church, probably a circular epistle, because there are some false teachers that have come into the congregation and have caused quite a difficult time to the believers. And we see that, so John addresses this very pointedly, as we see in verse 18, when he says, children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. So he identifies the false teachers and as those who have the spirit of Antichrist, those who are obedient to Satan. It says, from this we know that it is the last hour, and so that is the evidence that we are in the last hour, which, of course, encompasses the time from our Lord's first coming until his second coming. And then in verse 19, he identifies these as those who went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. That was the identification of that, because it says, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. The fact that they went out really identifies the fact that they were never truly saved. They were never truly part of the body of Christ. But there's a contrast in verse 20. It says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, and as we looked at that before, we realized that it's referring to, of course, the uh, Holy Spirit. And so the believers, opposed to the false teachers, do have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he says, verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth. Contrasting, of course, the lies of the false teachers with, with the truth of the Word of God which the true believers adhere to. And then further identifies the false teachers with saying, who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And of course, here we see identified the key heresy, the false teaching regarding the person of Christ. And this is, of course, as Pastor Bill frequently has mentioned, the key question who do you say is Jesus Christ? That is the key question for all of us. And then in verse 23, 
states, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Here, a final quality of the false teachers, and then the contrasting identification of the quality of the believer who confesses the Son and has the Father also. So this morning, as then we move into verses 24 through 27, we just have four divisions in, in these um, identifications in these four verses. In verse 24, we have a test. In verse 25, we have a promise. In verse 26, we have a warning. And in verse 27, we have a provision and an assurance. So as we look at verse 25, we find that this is a, find a test. And the test is, does the gospel abide in you? Does the gospel abide in you? First of all, we find that it is the old, unchangeable message. It is the message that was preached by the apostles since the beginning. And secondly, the, the evidence is that you continuing in the Son. In contrast to the Antichrist, the false teachers, the tr- true Christians are people that are committed to the Word of God, that are committed consistently, persistently to the Word of Truth. The true believer is devoted and faithful to the Word of God. We saw that last week when uh, Mr. Bill preached the message that not all faith is true saving faith. And by the way, if you weren't here or haven't listened to that message, please do. It is a very powerful message. It is a very sobering message. It's an extremely important message. But we saw how the Lord Jesus himself in chapter 8 and verse 31 of John stated, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Truly a disciple of mine, the one who continues in his word. In the second epistle, John wrote to the church, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. And again, in the third epistle, he encouraged his readers with the following, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And of course, the term walking in the truth has the implication of a continual remaining in that truth. The Apostles' portrait of Christians as ones who walk in the truth, here is in verse 24 of 1 John 2, is a very sharp contrast, a sharp contrast to the false teachers, those who were propagating the spiritual lies. John, in this verse, exhorts Christians to persevere, to let that truth abide in them which they heard from the beginning. We as believers are commanded to actively persevere in the truth because it is the means by which we are sanctified. As we read in our reading this morning in the Lord Jesus' priestly prayer, he prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now in verse 24, we're looking at the emphatic personal pronoun in the phrase, as for you, calls attention to John's direct appeal to his readers, to his audience. It heightens the contrast between them and the false teachers. You is the first word in the Greek sentence and makes 
it, you a point of emphasis. And so it bring, brings to the forefront a very clear contrast with the heretical apostate teachers, the Antichrist he has identified. And so his appeal is, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. And this is his appeal to us this morning. Lord, the word of Christ, abide in you, in us. The word abide means to remain, to continue, to dwell, reside. And literally, that sentence reads in that which you heard from the beginning, in you let it be abiding. You see there the sense of a continual abiding, a continual remaining. Those who continue in what they have heard show that what they have heard from the beginning abides in them. And the result is they will also abide in the Son and in the Father in the latter part of that verse. That, which you heard from the beginning, of course, denotes the apostolic message viewed as a whole. It's not referring to just one specific teaching, but it's viewing the whole apostolic message, really. It's referring to the gospel. And it is in this message where they must remain in contrast to any of the false teachings that have been brought to the church and have caused so much difficulty and problems must remain in that message. In the gospel, in the apostolic teaching, the original message which had been preached, it hadn't changed and it would not change. They must see to it that it remains in them. Now, it would not do so automatically. They must take steps to, to ensure that it does. And so must we. From the beginning, that phrase carries them back to the time when they first heard and received that message. But the verb you heard includes the entire period since then, so that this time they have been hearing that same message. So it implies continuous of the same message. Now, what these believers had heard from the beginning was the teaching of the apostles, especially their teaching on the core issue of the gospel, the person of Christ. Even as we saw many a long time ago, at the beginning of this epistle, John begins this epistle with the words, what was from the beginning, which refers there to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the word of life was from the beginning. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the core, is the gospel. It is the continuity of the apostolic message to which John is here appealing. And he states, let it abide in you. Allow the message to be at home. Allow the gospel to be operative in your heart, in your lives. Letting this original message abide in them is equivalent to their abiding in the Son and in the Father. As one commentator expressed it, As for you, whatever others may say and whatever others may teach, let the truths which were taught you have a home in your hearts. If these truths have a home in your hearts, you also shall have a home in the Son and in the Father. Close quotes. When John tells us to abide in what we heard from the beginning, 
He means if you began with the gospel and with the sound doctrine of the apostles, whose teaching is the foundation of the church, why depart from these sure truths for the religious speculations of these false teachers? And this, beloved, is something that we must be continually on the alert and on guard for, not being led astray by false teaching. We have the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, and John is telling us to abide in these certainties. Therein lies the assurance, and therein lies the effectiveness of all believers abiding in the message. Now, the second part of the verse, 24, is in expressing, it expresses the result of this abiding, and so John restates the concept of abiding, and it is a uh, conditional statement. He says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, the use of this conditional clause, if what you heard from the beginning, it leaves open the matter of the fulfillment of the condition. It challenges them and, and challenges us to make sure that that condition is fulfilled, that it is carried out. In other words, the word of truth, the gospel, which you've heard from the beginning, must continually abide in you so that you will abide in the Son and in the Father. The effective indwelling of God's word involves the believer's cooperation. The fulfilled condition assures that you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. They also assure them that with the indwelling word, they would also know the reality of abiding in the Son and of the Father. The continual abiding leads us into that wonderful reality of abiding in the Son and in the Father. Now, John has already stated in the first chapter of this epistle, in verse 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that, purpose clause, you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It is only through the Son that we can come to the Father. John chapter 14 and verse 6 the Lord Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, as going to verse 25, we find here a promise. And that promise is eternal life. In verse 25, states, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. What a wonderful promise this is. It describes the promise which every true believer has, eternal life. When we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, our eternal life is no longer in question. What a blessing that is. It is secure, not because it rests upon us, but because it rests on God's promise. And he is faithful to his promise. Now, eternal life is the promise given by God to those who truly believe in Jesus, who believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord. It is the good news of the gospel. Apart from those good news of the gospel, we are all under God's righteous condemnation because of our sins. We all face death and then judgment. 
But the good news of the gospel is that God, in his great mercy and love, has provided a way for the guilty sinner to be forgiven, to be forgiven of his sin and to be reconciled to him by the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe who died on, on Calvary's cross so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, a well-known verse. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Eternal life is God's promise, and that means it is not something that we have to work for. It's not something that we deserve. God promises eternal life as a free gift to any guilty sinner who will receive it by faith. If God promises eternal life apart from works, then why turn to a system of religious bondage that can't deliver eternal life even after a lifetime of striving after it? Eternal life indicates not only biological existence, but a fullness, a genuineness of life. It includes both the ideas of quality and quantity of life. Eternal life is not simple life that never ends, but a fullness of life that is unending. The Bible tells us that everyone will exist eternally, everyone. It is the quality of that existence that it separates us. For those who accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, that quality will be with God in fullness and fellowship of joy eternally. For those who reject Jesus Christ and stay in rebellion to him, that death is described as suffering, punishment, and separation from God throughout eternity. This happens to those who physically die while they are spiritually dead. The unrepentant sinner will experience eternal conscious banishment from God's presence. Jesus is the resurrection, the life, and that life is eternal. John eleven twenty five. he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So it's John three thirty six. Notice how the eternal life for a believer is present. He has eternal life. The Greek tense also indicates a present life. It occurs now. It is there today. Now consistent with this, 1 John chapter 5 verse 12 implies that the believer has this eternal life now, not just in the future. And this in turn agrees also with chapter 5 and verse 24 of John. In 1 John 5.11 says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And then John five twenty four says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. 
Eternal life does not start when we die, but as soon as we put our faith in Christ. And though it does include a wonderful future in heaven, eternal life does not refer exclusively to it. Eternal life is something believers in Jesus currently possess. Now, in verses 26 and 27 of this passage, it's sort of a summary conveying renewed reminders about the conflict. He has already visited these subjects in a, in a fashion in the previous verses we saw, from verse 18 onwards. And so there's a conflict between truth and falsehood, exemplified by the false teachers and versus the true believers. John reminded of the danger of the heretics in verse 26 and then recalls the equipping, equipping giving through the anointing received in verse 27. That's the resource of the believer in the face of danger. So in verse 26 that we have the warning. They try to deceive us away from Christ is the warning. It's a reminder of the threat. It's the danger from the deceivers. And he says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Again, reminding of the danger. John doesn't underestimate the strength of the subtlety of the deceivers. That's where he circles back to this warning and reminder. Those who are trying to deceive you. The phrase, those who are trying to deceive you, is a clear reference to the opponents mentioned earlier who are attempting to deceive the Christians and those are the ones that he's writing to. And by the way, we even today continue to have this warning for all of us. Now these false teachers have not succeeded to those that John is addressing, but they're in the process of making the attempt that it's possible for Christians to be deceived by false teachers. As is implied here, the devil himself is the primary deceiver, for he is in his very nature a liar and the father of lies. John chapter 8 and verse 44 states, You are your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The Lord Jesus here is addressing those who are opposing him. He was a murderer from the beginning, he goes on, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And in the same epistle, 1 John in chapter 5 and verse 13, he states, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Notice again the stark contrast here. Those who are true believers are of God, but the whole world system outside of them, lies under the power of the evil one. Despite the existence of countless political, cultural, and social entities in the world, there are in reality only two realms, those who belong to God and those who are under the power of Satan. Where do you find yourself this morning? The whole world system lies in the power of the evil one, and the false teachers that were threatening the church that John is writing to were under the power of the evil one. 
John again referred to the crisis facing his readers when he says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, that these things I have written you could refer to the epistle as a whole, but probably refers to verses 18 through 25 that we looked at earlier. Since they contain the most explicit treatment thus far concerning those who are trying to deceive the believers. In verse 18, John called them antichrists, exposing their true character. Now he characterizes them as those who are trying to deceive them. So they are deceivers. In verse 18, John uh, addressed the same underlying quality of these false teachers. And now, here he specifies this seductive tendency that they have a seductive, deceiving danger for the believers. John points to the heretics as a group characterizing by their continuing efforts to deceive, to lead astray. And this continues to occur in the, in the church and outside the church today with false teachers. Though they had formally withdrawn from the Christian community, so it's important to note that they were part of the community, they were part of the church. These former members still aggressively sought to influence the faithful, intent on deceiving and leading them astray from the apostolic faith and fellowship. John did not underestimate the strength and subtlety of these heretics and wanted his beloved reader to be alert of the danger to them. And so must we, beloved, be alert continually. We can't underestimate the power of the evil one. We must continually be on the alert and we must be discerning. We must be discerning to protect the church and to protect the individual believer from the ever-present danger of false doctrine. That's why we must remain, abide in the word of truth. And then, as we look at verse 27, states, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And here in this verse, we have an assurance. And that assurance is the provision of God to protect us, the Holy Spirit. For the danger, there is the God-given equipping. There is an imminent danger, but there is a provision, the equipping, giving of God to the believers, to the Holy Spirit. As for you, of course, the beginning of this verse underlines and emphasizes the sharp contrast between John's readers and the deceivers. And that because the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. He now reminded his readers of the reception and permanence of their anointing. They had received this anointment. But this wasn't just a, a temporary anointing. It is a permanent one. It was received from him. And this looks back to the beginning of their Christian life when by faith they accepted God's saving message and the anointing was God's gift to them. Now, in this first part of, the, of verse 27, the main emphasis is that he abides in us. 
That anointing says now abides in you. That is, it dwells in us permanently, equipping us to stand firm against the deceivers. Against such would-be deceivers, John's believers have a second safeguard, namely the anointing you receive from him and which abides in you. The first was in verse 24. It is remaining, abiding in the truth, and now we have the abiding of the Holy Spirit in us. Just what you receive from him, and looking back to when by faith they accepted God's saving message. Now the equipping is to stand firm, and it is a very efficient and complete equipping, as we will see. The anointing was received from him, and it abides in you. As we saw when we studied verse 20 before, there's a, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The anointing which believers have received refers to the indwelling Holy Spirit, which has given them at conversion. Every believer at conversion receives the Holy Spirit. Anointing though refers figuratively to the Holy Spirit, who now has taken up residence in believers at the behest of Jesus Christ, the Holy One, and reveals through Scripture all they need to know. It is the Holy Spirit in us, enlightening us through the Word of God. Paul had used the same term in relation to the gift of the Spirit. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 21, he says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The Lord Jesus himself had promised that the Spirit once given would remain with us forever. In John chapter 14 and verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, in verse 27, then as he transitioned the second part of that verse, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. The word and adds the result of that abiding of the Holy Spirit. And the result is that he says you don't need anyone to teach you. Possessing knowledge by the spirit of truth, by his illumination of the truth, you do not need anyone to teach you. Now, this is a statement, of course, that can easily be misconstrued or misinterpreted and misapplied. Someone who simply doesn't agree with a precept can simply say that he or she doesn't need to, anyone to teach them. And so, particularly those who may have the tendency to be lone ranger Christians who do not believe that they need to be sitting under biblical teaching within a local church. So there is a danger of, and this has been many times misapplied. But John obviously does not mean here that they no longer needed a teacher to instruct and guide them 
to instruct them also in gaining a fuller and firmer apprehension of the Christian faith and life. And we know that because that is precisely what John is doing in his epistle. He is teaching them. He is teaching them. So that's not what he's referring to. So we must see this verse in the context of the epistle in which John is, in fact, teaching those who he says have no need of anyone to teach them. Now, Scripture is clear that God provides teachers for the edification of the church. God manifests his sovereign and perfect provision in equipping his church by appointing teachers to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So God himself has appointed teachers. Earlier in that same chapter, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 11, Paul, speaking of God's sovereign control over spiritual gifts in the church, says, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. It states that each gift is supernaturally and sovereignly given by one and the same Spirit. Each gift given to the church. And then in verse 18 of that same chapter, it states, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. We see, again, his sovereign providence acting and giving these gifts. But just a little side note here. Please note that every believer is spiritually gifted. Every believer is spiritually gifted. All of us are given spiritual gifts, and all of us are called by the Lord to minister the gifts. We are called to minister the gifts that he has given us within the body of Christ. So a Christian who does not have a ministry is a contradiction. He's being disobedient and denies God the right to use him in the way he intends and for which he has gifted them. When we refuse to follow God's will and God's plan, we deny his authority and lordship as well as his wisdom and his goodness in providing for his body. As members of Christ's body, we are not to do our own will, but the Lord's will. Now, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, where he says, God has appointed in the church teachers. So it's a clear indication that teachers have been appointed. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, states he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So that it is all given providentially by God for the building up of the body of Christ. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11 Referring to the gospel, Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And there are other passages of the New Testament that refer not only to the general ministry of teaching in the church, but also to specially gifted teachers. There are other passages we can cite regarding teachers, but that's enough to show that there are teachers appointed to each in the, in the church, to each church, and therefore John here is not saying that we are to refuse to be taught 
by qualified biblical teachers. So as we look at the context then of this passage, we realize that John here had in mind the teaching of the pre-Gnostic false teachers whom he has been addressing. These teachers profess to rise higher than the divine revelation in Christ and that was proclaimed by the apostles. So their teaching they proclaimed as higher teaching. John assured his readers that having received the apostolic message, having the word of Christ abiding in them, and then having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as the provision, they had no need to be taught by these false teachers with their professed higher spiritual gifts. Now as we go on in verse 27, we find that he teaches us the truth. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie. Now the competence of the Holy Spirit to teach us is indicated in the next phrases, in these phrases, namely that both his anointing teaches us about all things, and that he teaches us about the truth, and not a lie. If God is the true God, and Jesus Christ is the truth, the Holy Spirit also is true. Believers have an enablement, we all have an enablement of understanding God's truth by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us through the Word of God. This knowledge is wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and enables us to know the difference between God's truth and the counterfeit teaching of false apostles. And this is crucial in our spiritual discernment. Believers need to have true knowledge and understanding about Christ's deity, humanity, and sufficiency to be able to withstand these false teachers. Because believers have received the Holy Spirit, they have true understanding of God. And John affirms that the believers have a supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit through whom they are established in their faith and enabled to know and therefore understand God's truth. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have a constant source of spiritual knowledge and it enables us to be discerning and withstanding false teachers and enables us to be persistent in our faith, to persevere. Now the clause teaches you about all things parallels the promised work of the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus in John chapter 14. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's chapter 14, verse 26. The present tense in this statement teaches, marks that this teaching is a continuing work. It is not just a one-time, it is continuing work of the Spirit. And the plural, you, indicates that this teaching is received by all those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is permanent as a resident and is a permanent resident teacher of every believer without distinction. 
Now the Spirit teaches about all things. Now all things are concerning those which are the true Christian need in terms of knowing and persevering in the gospel, persevering in the truth of God. These, the teaching is to distinguish truth from error and to be sanctified through God's word, as we saw. This teaching is true and it's not a lie, so just, again, making a statement of distinction with the false teacher. The Holy Spirit teaches God's truth. This assertion assures that what the Spirit teaches is true to fact in full keeping with God's revealed truth. And therefore, it's not a lie, not a falsehood, such as the heretical teacher's espouse. And then stays, and just as is has taught you, you abide in him. Here he seals us, he assures us that we do abide in Christ. Part of the Holy Spirit's teaching ministry is giving, giving us that assurance. The verb it has taught simply asserts the fact that that's whatever the length of that person's Christian experience is. Throughout that time, the Spirit has taught you. The concluding clause of the, of the verse can be rendered with you abide in him. It's according to the, that's how the New American Standard has this, which is really an indicative or a statement of fact. Or it can be rendered, as for example, in the English Standard Version, as abide in him, which is an imperative or a command. Now, textual scholars generally agree that you abide in him is better supported, but there's no universal agreement to which it is the indicative or imperative. Both are true. As we consider verse 27, we encounter a very encouraging and truth regarding the Holy Spirit in the Christian. And that wonderful encouraging truth is the ministry of illumination by the Holy Spirit. That is what it's talking about here. We need God's help to understand God's word. And that help comes to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit by his ministry of illumination in the believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 states, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Spirit of God enlightens the minds of believers so that they might, be, comprehend, they might comprehend, embrace, and obey the truths revealed in Scripture. So the illumination of the Holy Spirit leads us to be able to understand so then we can act. It is crucial for us to understand that we need God's enlightenment to understand Scripture. Psalm 119, verses 33 and 34 states, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. 
Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. In Psalm 119, verse 102 states, I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. In this great, in his great love and mercy, God the Father gives us the help we need to know and understand Scripture through the indwelling Holy Spirit. God's ministry of illumination, by which he gives us light on the meaning of the Bible, is affirmed in Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. What a wonderful prayer that is by the Apostle Paul, asking that believers are open understanding of the riches of the glory of God. But notice the beginning of the verse. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, the heart is the inner person. It involves the intellect, the emotions, the will. It's where the soul and the spirit is. And Paul prays here that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, and that enlightening occurs through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the verse we're looking at, verse 27, where he says, His anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true also. states. Now, the truth about God illuminating Scripture for Christians is a very assuring truth. It's a very encouraging truth, and we relish it. Now, it doesn't eliminate the need for gifted men to teach. So it's not something that someone can just claim and then assume that they have perfect knowledge, because throughout the Scripture we see, as we saw already, that God gives gifted teachers to the church. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 states, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So clearly involves beyond teachings. It doesn't eliminate the need for the hard labor of serious Bible study. This doesn't mean you sit in a corner and just hum and expect the Holy Spirit to fill you with knowledge. We are called to participate in the hard work of studying his word. It does promise that there is no need to be enslaved to church dogma or to be led astray by false teachers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So it definitely tells us we must actually handle the word of truth. We must actually work at the word of the truth. And through the Holy Spirit would enlighten us through his word. The primary dependence for learning scripture needs to be on the author of scripture, the Holy Spirit himself. Now, while Holy Spirit illumination is indispensably helpful 
There are certain things that it is not and certain things that it cannot do. First of all, illumination does not function apart from the Word of God, as we've already mentioned, and that is crucial, beloved. It functions through the Word of God. Psalm 119 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 45, the Lord with the disciples, the road to Emmaus stated, states, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he opened their minds. Now, illumination does not guarantee that every Christian will agree doctrinally on every point because, well, the human element can cause false doctrine to develop. Illumination does not mean that everything about God is knowable. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 states, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. It only applies to those things that God has seen fit to reveal to us. What a wonderful and assuring doctrine this is of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so we see it, this passage in John, he presents this as an encouragement to the believers, an assurance to them as they are facing these difficult times. And for us, it is equally assuring and encouraging. It's actually a, a parallel verse to, to this in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, a wonderful verse. The first part states, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Notice the similarity, dwell or abide, a very similar words, similar meanings. The word of Christ, of course, here is scripture. The dwell means to live in or to be at home with. Paul calls, uh, calls upon us to let the word take up residence and be at home in our lives, in our hearts. The word dwells in us when we read it, study it, meditate upon it, and when we live it with prayer through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask God's Spirit to flood our soul so that our very being is saturated with his word of truth. And, beloved, as we do so, the Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts. Let's pray.